Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Today marks the 20th anniversary of the University of Maryland men's basketball team winning the NCAA National Championship on April 1st, 2002. I spoke about it with Johnny Holiday, the longtime voice of the Terps, who also spent many years moonlighting as a Helen Hayes Award nominee on the theater stage. Johnny Holiday, hey, thanks so much for joining us on WTOP. Thank you, Jason. Nice to be with you. Now, you have been the voice of the Maryland Terrapins uh, for the longest time, as far as I can remember. How many years? Where are you at? Uh, this I just finished number 43. Next year will be number 44. Oh, my gosh. Well, congrats on the long run. You know, for so many folks, your voice is, is Maryland basketball, you know, among other things. But we're talking Maryland basketball today because it's hard to believe today is the 20th anniversary of Gary Williams leading those Maryland Terrapins to the national championship in 2002 over Indiana. Um, Does it feel like 20 years? Can you still remember it clearly? (laughs) You know something, Jason, it doesn't. It seems like yesterday we're sitting there in the Georgia dome. You got 50,000 people. You got a chance for Maryland to make basketball history. They had never, ever won a national championship in men's basketball or women's for that matter. And you can close your eyes and you can visualize the final couple of seconds of the game. You can visualize the shot that that uh, Juan Dixon took, the shots that Steve Blake took, Lonnie Baxter, all those guys, Chris Wilcox. And it does seem like yesterday. It was in a, mag- a marvelous, magnificent journey that you know only one team gets to enjoy that every year. Everybody else goes home and says, it's been a bad year. We didn't win the national championship. It's awfully tough to win a national championship. It really, really is. And that squad, I mean, you mentioned Juan Dixon, Steve Blake, Lonnie Baxter, Chris Wilcox. There was also um, Byron Mouton and so many, so many great players. We remember Um, those guys were, were, tell, remind our listeners how those guys were battle tested, that they had gone to the final four the previous year, right? And lost to Duke. Yeah, we got to Minneapolis, and we lost to Duke after having a big lead in that game. And that was something that really stuck with all these guys. They were absolutely destroyed to have given that game away. They thought they should have won it. They thought they should have won the whole thing. And after that game, Jason, they all said, okay, we got this far. This is pretty cool. Let's win the whole darn thing next year. Now, it's easy to say that. You know, but then you got to go out and, and, you know, put your actions where your mouth is. And um, and, and they did it to to win 32 games, to lose only four games in a murderous schedule and to go through the teams that they had to beat just to get to Indiana was incredible. Siena, Wisconsin and Kentucky and Connecticut and Kansas. 
And you talk about teams with tradition, teams that had won national championships. Uh, Kentucky had won them. Uh, Kansas had won them. Uh, it, 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 was, it was just a marvelous, marvelous run. And the thing I think people forget about that national championship team, there was not one single McDonald's high school All-American on that roster. Wow. It was just a bunch of guys that blended together, played together, and like their coach, like Gary Williams, a Hall of Fame coach who that year was the coach of the year, he had a chip on his shoulder, and every single guy on that roster reflected Gary Williams. They acted like him. They thought like him. They had that attitude that nobody's going to beat us. Nobody's going to beat us. And, and that's what it takes to win a national championship. Oh, absolutely. And I love that you mentioned that sort of that gauntlet, that murderer's row they went through because, you know, I, I, that, especially that UConn game, right? Yeah, the, the UConn game was after Kentucky to get to Kansas. They beat Kentucky, they beat Connecticut in back-to-back games, and they beat them handily, too. And the thing about the Connecticut game, it was almost like a highlight reel between Karan Butler, who later on wound up with the Wizards, the Bullets at that time, and Juan Dixon. Every time Dixon would come down hit a shot, Butler would come down and hit a shot. And I remember Gary Williams telling Byron Mouton, okay, Karan Butler, make him shoot long shots. He cannot hit the three-pointer. He can't hit the long-range shots. And I think Butler had about six or seven in a row in the second half. And, uh, and Mouton would look to the bench and say, hey, coach, you told me the guy can't hit the long shot. He's killing me. He's killing me. And Mouton's one of the toughest competitors we had on the team. But to get that win, that was the one, I think, of all the, the games leading up to Indiana that, in my mind, stood out the most. It was the most impressive. Oh, definitely, definitely. And to see them close it out over, over Indiana, uh, you know, there, there, was no, there was no mistaking that they were the best team that year. And uh, talk about, I mean, we mentioned Gary Williams. I mean, hard to believe it's the it's the he he was he never ended up getting getting back there but uh you know it's hard enough to win to win one so his legacy he's he's a hall of fame coach and all-timer in our books um i ended up enrolling in maryland uh, they won they won the national t- championship my senior year of high school so me and a bunch of other people from the area went to maryland to try to see if they could do it again but uh never never materialized but, but just talk about gary's talk about gary's legacy and impact on 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 just um i mean he's 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 the guy he's the go at that school <laughs> well he's, he's the guy that changed the landscape of maryland basketball you know lefty did his part when he got national recognition with tom mcmillan len elmore uh and those kind of kind of guys billy hahn and you know he but he never won a national championship he won one acc tournament championship back in 1985 84-85 but that was it and so lefty had done his work and then bob wade came in and had a pretty tough time for three years before they finally got Gary. And only one job he would take, Jason, would be the job at Maryland. He was at Ohio State. He'd had tremendous success there. He had even better success up at Boston College. And, of course, he started at American University here as their head basketball coach. And so when he came to Maryland, he just brought that, number one, he's a Maryland guy. He played for Bud McMillan back in 1968. He was the team captain was not a big scorer, but the way he played, the way he focused on the game, the way he studied video and film of the opponents because he knew he could make his mark being a defensive guy. And if you looked at all the Gary Williams teams, that national championship team limited opponents 
to shooting 40% from the field. That's pretty good. That's darn good with the kind of schedule that they had. But the way that he conducted himself, the way that they got to the NCAA tournament 12 consecutive years, the way they got to the Elite Eight and the Final Four, and then come back to win it all. And as he said over and over again, if it was that easy, then you could do it again the next year and the following year and the following year. But it's not, you got to have all the pieces falling together at the right time and the right spot. You have to have injury-free season. You've got to have a schedule that you can handle. You have to win the non-conference games. You have to win the games you're supposed to win. And when you look back, they lost the first game of the year to Arizona up in New York at Madison Square Garden. And a lot of Maryland fans were saying at that time, here we go again. We lost the last game last year in the Final Four to Duke. Now we lose the first game of the year. We were picked like number three or four in the country. And then they reel off eight straight wins. And then they lose the second game at Oklahoma. Then they lose the third game at Duke. They lose the fourth game against North Carolina State. That was in the ACC tournament. And then they got everything together and everything just fell into place. But what Gary did to put Maryland basketball on the map, you can't describe it. That's why he's in the Hall of Fame. And the thing I loved about Gary was after the games were over, he would always come over to us first before going back in the locker room. And we'd do our post-game show with him, which is piped over the PA system at Cole Fieldhouse. And he would he would get after the people that left early. I remember one time we were behind by about 10 or 11 points to somebody. And some of the fans started headed for the exits. And we come back to win the game. And Gary comes over and he says, first of all, I want to thank everybody who stayed. We appreciate you being with us. And for those of you that left, you missed a good ending. And we don't need you, okay? You're not a real true Maryland basketball fan. So he would get after the fans, and they loved him for that. They loved him for his honesty. And uh, I'll tell you one thing, Jason, one of the most accessible, relatable, relatable coaches that I've ever worked with is Gary Williams. I had 23 years with him, and there's, there's nothing like it. He's just an amazing guy, and uh, I don't think you can put into words what he has meant, not only for Maryland basketball, but I think for the Atlantic Coast Conference at that time, and for, for basketball nationwide. He's just an incredible coach with a, with a, certainly that, that, that marvelous touch for being able to pick out players that maybe nobody else would give a shot to, that they figured they couldn't you know, play for another, uh, another top 10 or top 20 team in the country. But Gary would take those guys, and he would make them something special. And when they left Maryland, uh, they got not only a tremendous basketball education, but they got themselves a pretty good education in the classroom too. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, Gary Williams is right up there, uh, up there, maybe with you know Cal Ripken and a short list of others of both most beloved in in Maryland history. In in fact, I remember that when Ripken broke the streak, it was Gary Williams and and Joe Smith, uh, the number one pick there, uh, that there. went up to Camden Yards and came yep. out and gave Cal a big bag of basketballs. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> It is. Uh, I mean, he he put him on the map. I mean, I, I I'm a little too young for the the whole Len Bias era and all that tragedy. But Gary, you know, I grew up on those Joe Smith teams, and then finally seeing seeing them get to do it uh, with the Juan Dixon crew, it it, it was it was magical. Um, so. It really was. Um, what, what I want to get your, I, I do want to talk about uh, some entertainment type topics here in a second, but one final point on Maryland. Uh, 
let's talk about the state of the state of the program today. Um, you know, um, Mark Turgeon obviously, you know, uh, left about in, in mid season and said, and then it was, it's hard to make the tournament when you lose your coach uh, in the middle of the year. Um, but we got Kevin Willard in here from Seton hall. Um, what, what's your, what's sort of your take, take on that? Uh, I guess two-part question, uh, you know, Turgeon, uh, do, do, do you think he, they, he might've stayed if it wasn't for the pandemic, you know, if, if his best team was able to actually go, go through the tournament and, uh, and, and then be, you know, what do you think of uh, Mr. Seton Hall? <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, the reason that Mark Turgeon walked away, he, he has his own reasons for that. Uh, first of all, I want to make it quite clear. He was not let go. He was not fired from his job. He chose to leave, and I think it was a combination of being frustrated with a fan base that never really embraced him the way that they should have, or at least the way he felt they should have. And he won 20, he won 20 or more games quite a few years, if you take a look back at his resume here at Maryland. And he's won, he's won like 476 games as a college coach, and I thought he did a pretty good job. But you never know what goes on behind closed doors with the administration. So he chose it's time to leave. And I think with Kevin Willard coming in, Kevin Willard reminds me of a Gary Williams. He's got some Mark Turgeon in him as well, as far as being a nice, nice person. And you can't find a better guy, I don't think, than Mark Turgeon was. And Kevin Willard reminds me of Mark. He reminds me of Gary Williams. He's got that same drive, that same desire that Coach Williams had. And I think when he made his opening comments to the Maryland fan base, he made it quite clear that his vision is to get Maryland back to where it was when Gary Williams was coaching, when Gary Williams won the national championship, when they won the ACC, when he was the coach of the year. That's the kind of attitude and focus that Kevin Willard has as a coach now at the University of Maryland. And if you look at the head coach of St. Peter's, Shaheen Holloway, played for Kevin Willard at Seton Hall. He was, on Kevin, he was on Kevin Willard's staff at Seton Hall. That's the kind of guy he coaches. That's the kind of guy he develops. And I think he's going to do a tremendous job. I, I think the, the portal's going to help him a lot. Uh, there may be some guys leaving, who knows yet, because he, he hasn't met the guys yet. Uh, and once he sits down and has the one-on-one -on -one meetings with him, with the, with the players, and they start to work out and start to focus on next year, then he's got a better idea of what he's got. But I think he's going to good, do a good job. It may not happen the first year because you can't turn things around overnight. Gary didn't do it. Lefty didn't do it. It takes a little time. But with a transfer portal, it helps uh, uh, schools tremendously. Uh, immediately you get help from guys that can step in and start playing. He's already got a couple of good assistant coaches he's named uh, to join his staff, a couple of guys that have local ties, and that's what I think you need. you got to keep the local guys here. And there's so much basketball talent in Washington and Maryland and D.C. Uh, and, and Virginia. You can't let them get away. you got to keep the guys here. And that, I think, is one of his focuses, too, to keep the, the best players here. Don't let them go somewhere else. Don't let them go to Carolina. Don't let them go to Duke. Don't let them go to Michigan. Keep it right here in College Park. 
Oh, yes. A hotbed for basketball yeah. talent all the Absolutely. way up in the youth program. Absolutely. Uh, well, you know, maybe with Kevin Willard and, and then over on the, you know, and then over on the football side with Mike Loxley, maybe, you know, maybe we have a, a new era reason for hope here in, in College I would, Park. Here. I would think so. I would hope so. Yeah. Uh, sure, well, it sure makes the games a lot more fun to broadcast, too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, yeah. Well, why I mentioned Loxley really quick. Uh, let's let's add, let's throw in one football question too. I mean, gosh, you have so many years of history following that football program too, and calling games and stuff. So, do, you, do it, was there a particular high, highlight for you? Was it the Ralph years? I guess. Uh, I would probably say the Bobby Ross years. I started right. with with uh, in football with Jerry Claiborne, then came Bobby Ross, then came Joe Kreback, and some other coaches. But I think uh, probably Bobby Ross and then Ralph Friesian. Those were the highlights. And, of course, Mike Loxley was on Friesian's staff as his offensive coordinator. And he has the utmost respect and continually talks about he would not be where he is today if it wasn't for Ralph Friesian. And Friesian won the ACC championship. He was coach of the year. He got the, uh, the Terps to bowl games on a consistent basis. So that's the goal of, of Mike Loxley. And as he heads into this coming season, this should be his best team he's had at Maryland. He's got a tremendous quarterback in Talia Tungabaloa. He's got some tremendous receivers coming back, some new additions to his coaching staff, which will help as well. And uh, I can't, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be his best year yet. Yes, some, we need some fun down at, at a Bird Stadium or what are they, whatever they call it now, Maryland Stadium, I guess is what it's called yeah, now. Yeah. Capital One Field in Maryland Stadium. That's this week they're calling it that. Yeah, by the time this interview posts, it'll probably be something else. <laughs> it, could be, it could be Jason Fraley Memorial Stadium. I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully not Memorial. <laughs> Hopefully it'll be around a while. But uh, but yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, uh, well, very cool. Well, we you you know you we've talked a lot about and you know you've you've doted on you know basketball and football programs at Maryland. But tell us, remind our listeners a little bit about you. How did you get into this broadcasting racket to begin with? Where'd you grow up, and you know how'd you get into to broadcasting? Well, I grew up in Miami, Florida. Uh, in fact, I never left the state of Florida till I was eighteen years old. As far north as I went was Jacksonville for a football trip. And we played a high school up there when I was in high school. And I just kind of back, I kind of lucked into broadcasting when I was 18 years old. Had no experience. The guy thought I did. And he hired me for the uh, uh, tremendous amount of $32 a week as a disc jockey. <laughs> and I uh, did that in Perry, Georgia for about four months. Went back to Miami. Uh, was hired by the African-American station in Miami. Nobody else would talk to me except these guys at that station. So they hired me. They hired me primarily because they bought a station in Rochester, New York, but they put me on the air two hours a day in Miami to give me more experience. This was in April, and we took over the station in July in Rochester, New York. So I went from Miami, which is a wonderful climate, having never seen snow. I saw enough snow in, in Rochester to last me for a lifetime. <laughs> so I was up there for a couple of years, then got a job offer to go to Cleveland. I spent five years in Cleveland, uh, started doing more sports, started doing theater when I was in Cleveland, and then went to New York City uh, at, a, at a big station up there, 1010 Winds in New York. When that station changed formats to all news, then I took a job in San Francisco, went out there for five years, and then came to Washington, D.C. back in November of 1969. So I've been here for a lot of years. 
Oh, that's great. And we, the, one of the reasons that uh, I was able to, I thought you might be a good fit for, you know, I'm on the entertainment beat here over at WTOP. Uh, but uh, the, I wanted to talk about that you have uh, a whole other side other than the the sports side. You you wear many hats and you also have done a lot of uh, acting in a lot of local shows. Uh, tell our listeners when, when that you know side of your career started. Well, the first show I did, Jason, was in Cleveland. It was Finian's Rainbow. And it was a summer stock show, and this producer would bring in big names to take lead roles in musicals. So the first guy I brought in was Dion, and Dion did uh, Best Foot, uh, Wish You Were Here. And then he brought in Bobby Vinton for The Music Man. He asked me if I ever done an, did any acting, and I said I did some in high school. And he, he said, I think you'd be perfect for Og the Leprechaun and Finian's Rainbow. So he brought in a lady from California. She was the lead singer on the Steve Allen Tonight Show, and she played the lead role. So when I did that show, I realized it was a great promotion for me to get more potential listeners to the afternoon show that I was doing on WHK in Cleveland. And, you know, the radio, the radio audience is different, so a lot different than the theater audience. So if you can pull a if you can pull it off, the role that you're playing, and if you can get good reviews, which I was lucky to get, it only helps the ratings on the radio. In the same summer series, I did Oklahoma. I played the part of Allie Hackham, the peddler. When I got to New York, I didn't do anything in New York. I was the announcer for Hullabaloo on NBC television, and that's the only thing I did outside the radio show. When I got to San Francisco, I always wanted to do How to Succeed in Business. So there was a company out there that I auditioned for, and I got the Bobby Morse role, which I did Finch in that show. And when I came to Washington in 1969, that was the first show I did here at Longworth Dinner Theater. Then I did uh, 13 shows at the Harlequin, uh, among them uh, Music Man, uh, Finian's Rainbow, same time next year, Odd Couple, Me and My Girl, uh, Carnival, 42nd Street. Then I've done a couple of shows for Toby's. I did Follies for Toby's. I did 42nd Street. Then I did the first show in the Clarice Smith Performing Arts Center at the University of Maryland when it opened. And I did Music Man with the with the music and dance and theater majors at the University of Maryland. And the thing I think I'm most proud about is, is for me and my girl, I got nominated for the Best Actor in a Washington Musical. I was up against Stacy Keach, and Tony Roberts. Wow. And none of us won. A small little theater in Washington, they won it. And this act, I think they sat about 125 people. And so it just goes to show you that even though you've got a big name, like Stacy Keach and Tony Roberts, uh, and they said to me, hey, Johnny, we thought this was your town. I said, wait a minute. I'm a local guy. You guys are national. And you, we all three got beat by this little guy at a small theater in D.C. <laughs> I've enjoyed it, and it's it's been a wonderful run. And, and uh, of course, when baseball started with the Nationals, I couldn't do any shows because I was doing the pregame and the postgame on television for them. So it's been, uh, been a lot of fun. Wow. Well, real quick, I want to make sure I have all the details. So, so that was the, the Helen Hayes Awards, I guess. What, what year yeah. was that? The Helen Hayes. That was uh, probably 91, I guess it was. Okay, and what role was it for? Was this for the one you were at Clarice Smith, or where was this? Yeah, no, this was the one for me and my girl. Okay, William, cool. 
William Snipson, that's the lead role. Tim Curry did it on Broadway. So this was at the Harlequin Dinner Theater then? Yeah, Harlequin, yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Very, very cool. Um, yeah. All right. And then what year was the, the Clarice Smith one that you opened? Uh, the first, it had to be probably 93 or 94 when they opened. It was the first show done there in the K Theater, which seats a thousand people. And the, hey, Jason, the great thing about that was uh, they brought in four of us from the outside because I'm equity. And we got the okay to go ahead and, and perform in this show. And the talent level was tremendous among the theater, dance, and music majors. And the girl that played opposite me, I played Harold Hill, and the girl that played Marion the Librarian, her dad was the former director of the Navy Band. So no she way. had a musical background and she was about probably about 25 or 30 years old. And she's now an opera singer. I think she used to be with the Pittsburgh Light Opera Company. And at the end of each show, we did eight shows a week for about three weeks. And at the end of the show, at the curtain call, curtain goes down, the curtain comes up. There's about six University of Maryland drummers on the stage. And they kick into 76 trombones for the curtain call. But at the same time, the 18-piece orchestra in the pit is joined by the Maryland Marching Band. They come in the theater, filling the aisles and the balcony, and they're playing 76 trombones with the orchestra pit guys. Mm. Standing ovation every night. Wow. So I said to the director, is that standing ovation for us or for the Maryland Band? <laughs> I th I think it was a combination, but it was. Let's go with you guys. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It was great. It was really great. Wow. Well, so you, I, I, so you, a couple seconds ago, you said that you, you know, you, you didn't have as much time to to keep doing performances once you started doing the Nats, uh, you yeah. know, pregame, postgame stuff. Um, when when did that start? By the way, uh, that started the second year they were at RFK Stadium. Oh, so like the I, very beginning did, then. Okay. Yes, I did it 13 years, and then I stopped the year that we, we won the World Series. It was the last year. Got a ring, and that was it. <laughs> but I, I, could, I found that I didn't have any time to do anything. Yeah. Because I went from baseball to football, overlapping with basketball, and then back to spring training and back to baseball again. So for 13 years, I had no time off at all. None. Yeah, that's a full-time gig family, year my round. Family, my my wife and kids went nuts. <laughs> they said, you know, you you gotta stop doing this. I said, Well, I, but I like what I'm doing. Yeah, we like to have you around too. <laughs> They're like baseball, basketball, football, and acting. You gotta pick yeah. three of the four. <laughs> I, know, I know, yeah. I, so, I'll send you I think I've got a copy. I've got a condensed version of music, man. It's just the songs that I did. But at the very end, you'll see the band come in. It's pretty cool. I'll, I'll email it to you. That's very cool. All right. So then what, so, so what, what was the last performance you did before that 13 year uh, hiatus for? The last one I did probably was Follies at Toby's. Follies at Toby's Dinner Theater in Columbia. Oh, Toby's is great. Either, we... either that, either that or 42nd Street. I can't think of which. No, 42nd Street was after Follies. Yeah, that was the last thing I did. 
Gotcha. And so even so, then obviously you have, you said you you went out on top when the Nats won the World Series. You oh, got yeah. a ring and you were done. So yeah, we did, got the ring. After that, did you have you toyed with going back no. to performing at all or no? You know, you know I have, but you, the the funny thing is, you know, I love to play golf. I love to go with my buddies different places, and if I'm doing shows, I can't do any of that stuff. I kind of really like what I'm doing now. Um. I think the role would have to be perfect to do it. They're thinking about doing 42nd Street again at Toby's. And since I know the role and I love the role, you know, you can do it in your sleep, basically. But I don't I don't know if I want to tie myself up for three months, eight shows a week for three months. That's a lot. And the tough the tough thing was I was doing ABC Sports every morning. I'm down at ABC at 530 in the morning. So. Here I am doing the theater performance at night, getting home at midnight, getting up at 4.30, five days a week to go downtown. And I was also the announcer for this week with Sam and Cokie on ABC television, and this week with David Brinkley. I was his announcer. So you don't, all you're doing is looking at your watch all the time. You know, where do I have to be? What time do I have to be there? How much sleep can I get tonight? I got to do the, you know, I mean, it's nice. But there comes a time where you're going to just kind of drive yourself into the ground. Yeah, yeah. You can't spread yourself too thin. Uh, but, yeah. but yeah, but but I just think it's really cool to – and that's why I wanted to have you on here. And not only the, the 20th anniversary of the national title for Maryland basketball, uh, hard to believe – but um, but also just to to highlight the fact that you had this acting side and and just in general, you know, if there's if there's young people out there listening to this, you know, just to to let them know that you know so so often I feel like you know on on TV shows or whatever it's it's either the sports guys are presented as these you know dumb meathead jocks, and then on the other side there's like the really artistic you know uh, Glee Club theater arts kids. And I just wanted to talk to you because you know sometimes there's people like you and I, Johnny, that we appreciate both. We 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 love the jock football stuff, but we also love the arts. So speak to that in general. How you know how sometimes you know there there's people that it's good to be well rounded. <laughs> I'll I'll have to send you a copy of my book, Jason. I wrote a book about 15, 16 years ago. It's called From Rock to Jock. Rock to Jock. And uh, Tony Kornheiser does the foreword, and Dick Vitale did the afterword. And it's, it's stories about all the things that I was able to do so far in my career and how I've done all these things with nobody teaching me. Everything is self-taught. I didn't get a degree in college, never got the degree. All three of my girls, one is a doctor and the other two are nurses, uh, got their college education. I didn't. And how many young people today can't go to college because of financial situation or whatever the circumstances may be? But I, I was able to parlay starting off at a small little tiny town called Perry, Georgia, making 32 bucks a week into something that is... You know, I was voted the number one disc jockey in America way back in the 60s uh, to be able to be the announcer for this week on ABC with Sam and Cokie and Brinkley was a highlight. And then the NBC thing with Hullabaloo, the Roger Miller show, I was his announcer uh, performing on the CBS comedy series, Good Morning World. I played Andy McChesney and that all these things together, just the right place, the right time. 
and kind of believing that I could do anything, anything that was thrown at me. And covering all the Olympic Games for ABC, uh, I spent 29 years with ABC Sports. Yeah. And going to Barcelona, going to Sydney, Australia, and Sapporo, Japan, and Calgary, and, and Albertville, France, and Seoul, South Korea. I mean, it. you can't, all this stuff is in the book that I wrote. And a lot of roadblocks, too, a lot of, a lot of things thrown at me that I could have probably said no to a couple of assignments when they said to me, you've done this, haven't you? And I would always say, oh, yeah, I've done that. <laughs> and hadn't. And hadn't. I hadn't done boxing. And here I am at the Olympics calling boxing with Ken Norton as my analyst. I had never done a boxing match before. Wow. And I'm doing blow by, you know, all these kind of things. And I tell young people, never say no. Don't ever say no. Because if you do, somebody else is going to get that assignment. Tell them, yeah, you can do it. And then figure out later on how you're going to do that. That's amazing advice. All right. Well, but yeah, before we run, tell them, tell listeners where they can find that book. What, what's it called again? I assume, is it on yeah, Amazon? It, it, well, the only, only way you can get it now, they're all used copies. There are no more new copies available. We, they printed 25,000, they sold 25,000. And then people will turn in the books to Amazon. So you can go to amazon.com and type in Jolly Holiday from Rock to Jock. And you can buy a used copy for a buck fifty-five, or you can spend sixty-five dollars and get a used copy. I don't know <laughs> why, but you can spend a lot of money or very little money. <laughs> well, that's up to everybody, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll give yeah. them the option. Uh, but hey, th- but but this entire time here was was money. So <laughs> I I, yeah. I I really really appreciate you joining us. Oh, thank you, Jason. Thank you. Is so how do you like how you like doing all the entertainment stuff you're doing? I did that for Channel Four. I did a thing called On Stage. So anybody who would come to Washington, I interviewed them. This is back in the 70s now. So I did stuff from Perry Como to The Fifth Dimension to Bobby Benton to Shauna Na to uh, Seals and Croft to uh, Jesse Colin Young. Wow. All these artists that would come to Washington and perform at uh, various venues. I'd be go out and interview them. It was really exciting. Well, that's really cool. I, I didn't know that. I didn't know you did oh, yeah. And, but, oh, but on stage, yeah, on stage on channel four, yeah. I mean, but that's, yeah, I mean, that's what's that's what is really cool about doing this gig is DC as the nation's capital. We're uniquely suited where you know New York's got Broadway, LA's got Hollywood, but DC is is where all the national awards are given out, you know, the Kennedy Center honors and the Gershwin prize and the Mark Twain prize, and you know, all yeah. the so so. We're sort of here on the doorstep of of all these uh, big celebrities coming through all the time. So yeah, it's really oh, yeah. great. And yeah. then all the and then like to your point, all the all the local great community theaters and lo- and local theaters around town, um, local concert venues, uh, um, filmmakers. I- I'm a big movie guy. So yeah, I mean, it, it's a really rich area. I I think it's almost underrated in 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 you know cultural cities around America. I'm trying to think of the woman that I did the interview with. Uh, she's a, uh, not a country singer. She was down in Woodbridge, Virginia, and I can see her face and I can, I just can't think of her name offhand. She's a major, major star right now. Really? And still performing. She's, she's probably got to be 60, 65 years old or so. 
Well, if you I think remember. if you think of it, shoot me a message after we get off here. If you think oh, of the name, yeah, I've got I've got a video, and I went down and we did an interview with her, with her little daughter. I think she was, she maybe should have been maybe four or five years old, and I think she and her husband had split at that time, and she had custody, and the little daughter kept while we we're doing the interview, jumping on her mother's lap. We'd have to stop, and somebody would take the take the little girl out and she'd start crying for her mother. Then they brought her back in again. She, I think she's got three names. I'm trying to think of Emmy Lou Harris. Emmy Lou Harris. Yeah. There you go. That's who it is. Emmy Lou Harris. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. When she was younger. You, yeah. You, you, you caught all these people on the ground floor before they became stars. <laughs> yeah. Glenn Campbell. Yeah. Uh, a legend. I knew, I knew Bobby, you know, Bobby Venton was a, I don't know if you're familiar with him or not. Of course. Yeah. Roses are red, my love. Oh yeah. Well, he had never he had never done theater before, and so we're doing Finian's Rainbow with this uh, woman named Jenny Smith, and uh, so Bobby Venton's rehearsing in the daytime while we're doing the show at night. So we got to be good buddies, and I was playing his records on WHK, and I was on between three and seven every afternoon. And we got to be good friends and still stay in touch today. And he was scared to death. He said, I, I've, I performed in concerts and with my records and so forth, but I've never done theater. And he was tremendous, really tremendous. Then Paul Peterson, they brought him in. I don't know if you, if you know his name or not. He was on the Donna Reed television show. Okay. And they brought him in and he was... And Dion was Dion was really good. And when he had his first couple of songs, "Run Around Sue," and of course he was singing with the Belmonts in those days. Dion and the Belmonts. Dion and the Belmonts. That's right. Yeah. And then when I was in San Francisco, when the music started to change, I was doing two to six in the afternoon on KYA, and all the FM stations started playing the long album cuts. So our boss says to us, we're at AM station, and we were the number one station in San Francisco. And one of the guys who was on after me, I was on two to six, a guy named Tony Big, who changed his name to Tony Pig when he got to New York. And he's the announcer for, it was Regis and Kathy Lee. But I'd sit there in the afternoon, and next to me would be Janis Joplin for three hours. And the next day would be Grace Slick in the airplane. Then Moby Grape would come in for a while. Every mother's son would come in. I got to be good buddies with Sly Stone. We hung around all the, all the time together. And he was one of the best disc jockeys anybody's ever heard. And people don't even know that Sly Stone was a disc jockey. Wow. And I didn't then, know that either. Oh, yeah. He, was, he, did, he did the night show. He did six to nine on KSOL in San Francisco, an R&B station. And he was really, really good. He also produced Bobby Freeman's record of Do You Want to Dance? Do you want to dance? And yeah. My... yeah, that he, one. He, he, told me, he, said, he said, Bobby Freeman, we had, we had to edit it together because he couldn't, he couldn't stay on key and he couldn't, keep, he couldn't stay <laughs> on rhythm. So we, we had to go in the editing room and edit it together where it sounded like he was singing one phrase at one particular time, but it was all edited together. <laughs> I, know, I know, I know. 
So I had, I mean, I had some, we had some great experiences in San Francisco. Oh my Man, God. The stories you could tell. I mean, I, 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 I didn't want to jump in and interrupt, but all, all the while, every time you're doing these name drops, I want to like ask a follow-up question about like, did, did Bobby Vinton, uh, you say you guys were pretty close. Did, did he tell you any cool stories about recording, you know, Blue Velvet or uh, Mr. Lonely or any of those? Well, the only, th only thing I remember him telling me, he says, he says, look at me, a Polish kid that can't sing. <laughs> that can't sing and i'm making records because i said bob you can sing he you said, can I, sing I have, no, I, have no, I have no vibrato he said they put they put that stuff in, in the studio oh they <laughs> they that's all done uh after oh yeah electronically yeah sure wow. it's like when i when i was doing the announcing for sam and for david brinkley i get called in one day and the guy says to me uh here i want you to read this so i look at the copy and i said hey hey bob as he was Bob Gollenbach, the, the uh, director. I said, you got the wrong guy. I said, I don't, I don't match up with, with what you're looking for. He said, oh, yeah, you do. I said, that show on Sunday morning is death. I said, it, it's so, it's not very good. He said, we know that. And we're trying to pick it up just a little bit. But the guy that's been the announcer uh, moved to Florida. He's been doing it on the ISDN line. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, then we're, then we're stuck. So we can't have him do it anymore. Here, just read this. So I take a look at the copy. Okay, from ABC. He says, no, 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 bring it down. I said, bring it down? Yeah, bring it down. Okay, from ABC, bring it down even further. I said, what do you want? He said, I want you to whisper. Barely whisper. We do the rest in the control room. Okay, from, from ABC. That's what I want. He said, I went to see you at the Harlan Dinner Theater. Here's another example of doing theater. Yeah, there you and go. Th there's a scene, you were in same time next year. There's a scene in the second act where you lost your son in the war. That's the mood that I want. Wow. That's how I got that job. Wow. I said, I'm, I'm, prob I'm probably the only play-by-play -play guy in the country that was the, the voiceover guy for a network new show on abc television <laughs> yeah. yeah that that appeared in all of these local productions that's funny they remembered that's, that's your right. yeah the next slot next to grace slick and with janice joplin and with sly stone <laughs> right exactly i it's your mr versatility seriously seriously it, it 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 is it is really impressive all the different you know you know how you didn't pick just pick a lane and and you know that you that you that you were able to do just stuff all across the board it, it really is inspiring and anyone that's listening to this i want yeah i want that your advice that you said about you know n never say no to anything just just take the gig and figure it out no, it, it, i don't think it, i mean i knew that i knew that i could act i knew i could sing i sang in high school in a chorus and all and i think one of the most challenging roles i had was in follies up at toby's and I wasn't familiar with Follies. I, I mean, I heard of it, but I wasn't, I didn't follow the show. I never saw it. So I go up there and Toby Ornstein was directing it. And she says to me, here, I'm going to read the part of Sally and you read Buddy Plummer. I said, okay. So I read the, I read the script and all. And she says, what do you think? And she's like maybe five feet away from my nose. And I said, this is it's a good script. She says, do you know the music? And I said, no, I don't. She brings the piano, piano stand. He goes through Buddy's Blues, which is a very tough song. 
Then he goes through waiting for the girls upstairs, which is about five minutes long. So I'm thinking to myself, uh, man, this is this is tough. So she said, what do you think? It'll be the best thing you ever did. I said, well, let me I said, let me get back to you because we got some. Oh, oh. So you, Johnny Holiday, is afraid of the role. I said, I'm not afraid of anything. Well, you've given me four different excuses why you can't do the show. So obviously you don't feel comfortable in your own skin that you can pull this off. I never said, <laughs> I said, I, ne I never said that. She says, do it. It'll be the best thing you ever did. <laughs> and it was. And it uh, was, but, but that's funny. Yeah, Toby's still there. We interview them every every so often, but I'm glad uh, that, glad she held your feet to the fire and you did it. <laughs> that, that's right. Oh, yeah. She she basically embarrassed me. And, well, then she says to me, okay, I know we're going to do 42nd Street next year. I know you'll do that because you can do that with your eyes closed, okay? But, this, but, but you're afraid to do this, huh, Johnny? And she, I, I was, I was incensed. I said, I'm not afraid to do any, do it. It'll be the best thing you ever did. And it was. And it was. And oh, yeah. it was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Take, take, basically, moral of the story, kids, take that leap. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I love it. Well, I mean, we, you, I, I feel like I could sit and talk with you all day. Um, but, anytime, uh, anytime, anytime. Who's been the most impressive person you've interviewed? Oh my gosh. I don't even know. Like, I don't even know where to start on that. Like Aretha Franklin was really cool. Um, I interviewed her in San Francisco. Yeah. We probably have a lot of overlap. I bet. <laughs> yeah, give, me, give me some of them. And I'll tell you if I did them or not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm sure. Um, gosh. So uh, like the red carpet stuff, which is not really a sit down interview, but uh, red carpet stuff, it's been Gosh, Tom Hanks and, you know, it, it's been pretty much every everyone you could think of. George Lucas. Um, we did a thing with Steven Spielberg, um, oh, wow. Jer Jerry Seinfeld. Um, but those are, you know, how those go. Those are like the, you know, you get a couple sound bites talking to somebody. But, you know, I got to sit down for a long time with like John Stewart. I did an hour with William Friedkin on Skype. I, I like when we get to, you know, go in depth. Wow. How was Hanks? Hanks was cool. I think I've, I think it was. Every, each time it's only been, you know, I get only like two questions in or something because it's the red, the red carpet thing. But um, they've interviewed him three times. He, he's he's what you think. You know, he's really down to earth. And one of one of the times was, I guess, Obama's last. Um, what do they call that? Presidential Medal of Medal of Freedom, something like that. Yeah. And yeah, sure. uh, so that was actually in the White House since it was Obama's last time. He was like trying to, you know, cram everyone in before he left office. And it, it, I'm no joke. The most famous people in the room I, all at once I've ever seen. It was it was Tom Hanks, Bruce Springsteen, Robert Redford, Robert De Niro, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Michael Jordan, Diana Ross, Ellen DeGeneres, uh, Cicely Tyson. It was like everyone all, all at once. It, that that blew my mind. Oh um, my God. Well, you know, <laughs> I called, I spoke to Sondheim. We were in rehearsal for company at the Harlequin Theater. And I played, uh, I played Bobby and company. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I go home and I was talking to the director named Nick Howie, who also owned the theater. And I said, why don't you, why don't we invite Stephen Sondheim to come down and, and see the show? And he said, 
no, you're not going to be able to get a hold of Stephen Sondheim. So, well, you're probably right. So I'm at home one night. We're still in rehearsals. And for some reason, I just called New York City Information. And I said to the operator, have a Stephen Sondheim in Manhattan. And she said, do you have an address? I said, well, uh, I don't have the address, but if there's an S. Son yes, she says, I have an S. Sondheim wow. on Central Park South. It's got to be the one. <laughs> so I called this number, Jason. Boy says, hello. I said, now I'm, now I'm, I'm frozen, right? I said, Mr. Sondheim? Yes. I said, uh, uh, my name, have you got a second? Yes. Who's calling? I said, my name is Johnny Holiday, and I'm doing company in Washington, D.C. Oh, hi, Johnny. How are you? What role are you playing? Wow. I said, I'm playing Bobby. Oh, wonderful role. So what, what, uh, tell me about the company. So I mentioned Harlequin Dinner Theater. And on behalf of the cast, I was just wondering, and my, my knees are knocking. I mean, I'm really yeah. nervous. I said that maybe you'd like to come down and see the show. He said, when do you, when do you open up? I said, we're opening up in two weeks and we're going to be running it for three months, eight shows a week for three months. I tell you what, um, I'm going, I'm going to London next week, and then I'll be back here. I probably won't be able to come. Give me, um, give me the address of the theater, and I'll write the cast a personal note. Wow. Which he did. What a nice guy. I mean, rest in peace. We just lost and him, too. Exactly. So I, I go to rehearsal one day, and, the, and Nick Howie says, uh, look what we got. And I didn't tell him that I had spoken to him. That it was you. <laughs> that <Yeah>. did it. <laughs> and he, I said, "How about that?" He said, "How did you? How did you? How did you find him?" I said, "I just, I just called information for Manhattan, and he was, <laughs> he was listed in the phone directory." Oh my now, what are god! The chances of that happening. That is an amazing story. And not only that you got through, but the fact that he wasn't, you know, put off oh, or like he, a curmudgeon he on the phone. Oh, no. But he, now keep in mind, he was, this was 1974, I guess it was. Sure. And he was still young at that time. Right. But he could not have been nicer. And he, he writes this beautiful note to the cast of company. Uh, I wish I could be there. I know it's going to be a dynamite performance. Knock them dead every single night. And I am honored that you would pick one of my productions to put on your stage at the Harlequin Dinner Theater. Best of luck. Love, Stephen Sondheim. And that thing stuck backstage the entire run. Wow. I mean, the fact yeah. that he would take the time out the to time talk to, to a dinner theater in the D.C. area when he's, yeah. you know, And, you know, Broadway. dinner theater in those days was looked upon. It's kind of looked down like. Yeah, it's dinner theater. How good can it be? It can be pretty damn good. It can. We've seen very, it time and again. Good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. Especially yeah. if Johnny Holiday is starring in it. <laughs> yeah. Just make sure the mashed potatoes are well done when you're going to throw them. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's funny. We were just talking about, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with one one final little dinner theater joke. <laughs> we um we were we just interviewed um toby's oh yeah we were just talking about toby's uh about they're, they're doing rocky the musical and um this was like in the past week and oh, really? 
and we were uh they were talking the fact that it was a dinner theater for some reason i don't know why i i probably shouldn't have said this but i said i was like hey you guys should you should get whoever's playing mickey the trainer have him go stand by the buffet line and say all right we're gonna eat lightning and crap them <laughs> Uh, they they laughed but i doubt they'll do i don't know if you put that on your menu <laughs> oh, is isn't she a piece of work toby oh yeah and and um mark minnick is mark, like mark minnick yeah yeah now mark assistant. mark was in 42nd street with me at harlequin he was part of the chorus oh wow and then he was in 42nd street with me at burnbury when i did it over there and then uh i don't think he was in any shows with me at toby's you know the two i did uh no he wasn't a you one he's a heck of an actor too marvelous actor yeah you you can tell that he lives and breathes it both yeah. you know pretty, as pretty an actor cool. and and behind the scenes you know as a director and, and i think he's the heir apparent out there to that theater oh you yeah know, de definitely definitely to take over when she decides to retire it's usually the two two of them that, that hop on for the interviews and actually he's been just do, doing it a lot himself so yeah i think you're right i think he'll he'll take that over eventually but, now do you know that do you know the name billy dewolf i do not who's billy dewolf okay billy billy dewolf was a character actor back in the 50s 60s 70s 80s um and he had a very pronounced speech pattern. Um, it's very difficult to describe him. But in this show called Good Morning World, it's about two disc jockeys, two morning disc jockeys. One was Joby Baker. The other was Ronnie Shell, And Goldie Hahn was in the show as well. So I became friends with Ronnie Shell in San Francisco. And he was doing this show. And he said, if you can get away, I can get you a part in the show. I said, yeah, I can get away. Sure. So they got me the part of Andy McChesney. I'm a new newsman and on the show. And so um, I go down to Los Angeles to rehearse at NBC Burbank. And uh, I'm sorry, CBS in Burbank. So at the same time, I was rehearsing for how to succeed in business. And Billy DeWolf played the uh, J.B. Bigley, the big boss in How to Succeed on Broadway. So we're standing, getting set to go on the set, and I've got the script behind, in front of me. He's standing in front of me. And um, so I kind of leaned over to him and I said, Mr. DeWolf, how did you like doing How to Succeed in Business? And he, 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 he only his head turned toward me and said, never talk to Mr. DeWolf when Mr. DeWolf is about to make an entrance. <laughs> he said that in the third person? Oh, yeah. Who so, do you think he is, The Rock? The Rock like, says. <laughs> like, I was, I mean, that's the way he talked. So I did, I, I wanted to crawl into a hole, you know, because he was, and then, and then he, then he turns around and he says, loved it. Talk to you later about it. <laughs> you know what that this and this is the guy i i i've realized who he is now this is the yeah. guy the magician that melted frosty the snowman yes yes that's exactly <laughs> right that's right a little mustache yeah. and a little yeah and here he's telling you do not he's talk. telling me never talk to mr de wolf mr de wolf is about to make his entrance 
Mr. DeWolf. Sounds like Addison DeWitt. Oh, my God. If you look at some of the stuff he's done on television, it's exactly the way he talks. Oh, Netflix. my God. And he says, he'd be on Johnny Carson's show, and Johnny would say, uh, Billy DeWolf, huh? He'd say, yes, Mr. Carson. Never say the junior. It's just Billy DeWolf, not the junior. <laughs> not the <de> junior. <laughs> never, never say the junior. Never, very, very busy. Yeah, I can hear it from the Frosty. Exactly. Oh, oh that's, that's the guy, Billy DeWolf. Oh man, alive! Wow. And you, and you, yeah. See, you've you've crossed paths with everyone under the sun. It's unbelievable. Oh my God! It really yeah. is. It really is. But none. I, I found I found that the bigger the name, the better interview they were. Like Perry Como when he came. Yeah. He's gonna play at the at the. Uh, what was that theater out there in Gaithersburg, right off 270? Uh, Shady Grove Music Fair. Okay. And he was performing there. And we went out to do a thing with him for Channel 4. And uh, they were having a sound check. And so then we sit down to do the interview. And the the interview was fine. And so I said, Mr. Coma, I said, thank you very, very much. I really appreciate your time. You're so, You're so kind. And he said, that's say my, my pleasure, Johnny, my pleasure. Uh, he said, then he said, what are you doing for the summer? I said, well, you know, as a matter of fact, we're going to, we're going to Acapulco. Uh, my wife and I, with two other couples, we're leaving next Thursday. Oh, hey, listen, when you get down there, here's, here's, a, here's a, let me write down a couple of restaurants and maitre d's you should ask for when you go. And I'm thinking to myself, here's Perry Como taking time to write down an Acapulco restaurants I should eat at. Wow. That is could not, amazing. Could not have been nicer. Wow. I've never yeah. done Perry Como. Did Johnny Mathis, I guess, is the closest to the crooners that I've never did Perry Como. That's really, really cool. How about Steve Lawrence? Never interviewed Steve Lawrence. Yeah, Steve Lawrence. When I was in New York, I went to see... Uh, here I was, I was 25 years old, a hotshot disc jockey. And I go to get my hair cut at the world famous Rudy the Barber. And Rudy did all these show business people. So I'm sitting in the barber's chair and Rudy says, hey, Steve. And Steve Lawrence is in the chair next to me. He says, Steve, I want you to be Johnny Holiday. He's brand new on 1010 Wednesday. He does the afternoon show. Hey, Johnny, how you doing? Couldn't have been nicer. Nicest, nicest guy. So I go to see him on Broadway and what makes Sammy run. And we're sitting like maybe the eighth or ninth row. And it seemed like a couple of times he's throwing winks at me or, you know, glances at me. So we go back to see him after the show, my wife and I, and Edie Gourmet is back there with him, his wife. And he says to me, hey, I mean, don't you, didn't, how come you didn't acknowledge me looking at you? I said, well, I didn't, I wasn't sure because you're kind of like in character doing a Broadway show. And the last thing I'm thinking about is you looking to me for eye contact. <laughs> nicest, nicest guy. Wow. Then he, he's on the Tonight Show and we played in a, uh, in a media baseball game at Yankee Stadium in New York. And I pitched and he was playing shortstop. And he's talking about it on Monday night on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Oh, and, he, and he's saying, hey, 
It, one of the biggest thrills of my life, Johnny, was playing at Yankee Stadium on Saturday. He said, I'm playing shortstop. He said, we got Murray the K's in center field. Johnny Holiday from 10-10 wins is pitching on the – I almost fell off the couch. <laughs> and then, then Called my buddy, your name. <laughs> oh, yeah. Then my buddy, Neil Diamond, who played on my basketball team in New York, when he was just starting off with Cherry Cherry and yeah. uh, was early hits, when the station co- goes to all news, he says to me, where are you going to go? I said, I took a job in San Francisco. Really? I'm going to be out there in three weeks. I said, oh, okay. I said, hey, Neil, if you can do me a favor, I've got a pair of shoes coming into McCready and Schreiber over on 46th and 8th Avenue. Um, could you, would you mind taking them out to me, bringing them out to San Francisco when you come? Yeah, sure. No problem. So I'm doing the afternoon show at KYA, and the receptionist says, there's a Neil Diamond here to see you with a pair of shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Neil Diamond, of Neil all Diamond. people. Wow. Yeah. He, he sang the anthem at, at uh, the Nats game a couple of years ago. And uh, we got together, and I said, you, he said, I remember that like yesterday. He said, but you know something? We were both young. We both didn't. We had no, nothing held us back. We didn't even think about asking somebody to do something like that. Now, this day and age, nobody would do that. Nobody. (laughs) Cracklin' Johnny. (laughs) You're crackling, yeah. Cracklin' Johnny, yeah. Oh, Oh my gosh. But you know what? It's it's funny. And I love getting to talk with someone like you. You get it, man. You you get it. Where we interview, you interview these people almost on a daily basis and and in, instead of being in all of them, they're they're just regular people. Like, uh, oh, oh they, yeah, I know. Uh, I know. And they want and they want to be treated as such. well. So, some of them want to you know act like they're better than you, but most for the most part, you know, you'll just pick up the phone and it's like, hi, it's Carol Burnett, and it's like almost like talking to your grandmother on the phone in the kitchen. And it's it's just it's good to get it's cool to get to know them as you know as, as people as opposed now, to. Do you know do you know the name Tim Conway? Of course, we talked to okay. Carol Burnett right after he passed, actually. Okay, now when I'm when I was in Cleveland, he was there as well. So Tim and I and Casey Kaslem used to hang out all the time. Casey was on a, a competitive station, so was Tim, and Tim was part of a two-man afternoon show, and he was just getting started. I was just getting started in Cleveland, and we used to do Manners Big Boy commercials. We were the voices, Tim and I. And I even saved a couple of those commercials, which I still have. They were god-awful. I mean, but the outtakes were better than the commercials because all I did was laugh at him. (laughs) So I haven't seen him in years and years and years. You're talking 1963, 1964. Yeah. So I see in the post that he and Harvey Cormer are coming to Washington with that two-man show they had. This is probably 10 years ago. So I track him down in, in Detroit and I leave a message at the hotel where he's staying. Hey, Tim, it's Johnny Holiday. Long time. Uh, haven't talked to you, seen you. I'm so happy for your success. Um, if you get a chance, give me a call. My wife and I are going to come see your show when you come to town. So a couple of days later, <laughs> I'm down at ABC and one of the interns says, there's a Tim Conway on the phone for you. <laughs> it's like when S. Sondheim answers the phone. Yeah, yeah. So I pick up the phone and I said, hello, uh, Johnny? Yeah. 
uh, Tim Conway. What uh, what could I do for you? Wow. Hey, Tim, how you doing? Uh, doing fine. Doing fine. What what uh, what could I do for you? Hey, boy, it's been a long time, Tim, since we did those matters, big boy commercials, back in the early '60s. Remember, I you were starting out, I was starting out. We had some fun, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. Well, we sure did. Yeah. <laughs> He has no idea who I am. <laughs> no idea. So, uh, so you and Harvey are coming to Washington. Uh, is is that what the schedule says? Yeah, it says you're coming to Washington to do a whole week at the uh, at the Warner Theater, and my wife and I are, are going to come see the show with a couple of couples, and hope to maybe pop backstage afterwards and say hello. Well, a lot of people do that. A lot of people come backstage. And, uh, well, look, uh, thanks for the call. I'm dying. I'm dying. I said, okay, uh, so I'll, uh, hey, listen, thanks for getting back to me. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I, I got a question for you. So, yeah, where the hell you been? <laughs> He's putting me on the entire time. <laughs> I said, I've been here in Washington. He said, you went to New York, and you went to San Francisco, then I lost track of you. You don't write, you don't call, you don't send candy, no flowers. <laughs> and this is what, this is how, you, you, you call yourself a good friend? He was mad you didn't stay in touch. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> we're, now, we're, now we're laughing and joking and talking. He said, absolutely. I'll leave your name backstage. Bring your friends back as well. So we... We're standing in line to say hello, and he's got probably 35 people in front of me. They just want to shake his hand. and So I get up to him. He's wearing these big, thick glasses. <clears throat> and so he sticks out his hand. He says, Tim Conway. I said, Johnny Holiday. I thought you were dead. <laughs> <laughs> I said, nope. I said, here I am. I said, Tim, this is my wife, Mary Claire. He grabs your hand. He says, "I am so sorry <laughs> that you have been you have been weighted down by this so-called gentleman." I oh, am so sorry. He he couldn't have been. He, he he just he was great. Then another name that you may not recognize, Paul Gleason. Paul Gleason. Yeah, I've heard of Paul Gleason. Paul Gleason, Mr. Vernon in the Breakfast Club. Of course. Well, Paul and I were high school classmates at North Miami High School down in Florida. And we played baseball together. We played football together. So I'm in San Francisco. I'm watching the movie Arthur with my wife. And I see Gleason is in this movie. What the heck? I had no idea he was in the movies. So I call L.A. for the Screen Actors Guild, and they give me his manager. And the manager says, he's, you know, he's playing this hoity-toity stuff. Well, send me a list of questions. I said, no, no, I don't want to interview him. I just want him to get back to me. We're high school friends. I want to catch manager, up with them. <laughs> and the manager says, yeah, sure, I've heard that before. I said, okay, just giving my name, giving my number. That's all I'm asking. <laughs> no message, no nothing. So a couple of days later, the phone rings, and, and <laughs> Gleason says, hey, Bobbitt. You know, Bobbitt's my last name. Holiday's my middle name. Okay. He said, Bobbitt, how are you? It's, it's Bags. I said, Paul, I, I, 
I just, well, you were, you're an Arthur, right? Yeah, yeah, I was an Arthur. How, how could this happen? Someone with absolutely no talent wind up in the movies like you. He said, excuse me, excuse me. Speaking of no talent, you're a disc jockey, they say. And we're just, we're busting each other back and forth, back and forth. So we set up. He said, you know, we got to get together with some of the guys from high school. I said, yeah, sure. So we get together. We plan these golfing trips. So we there'll be eight of us. And we, we would alternate. And we did it for about 12 or 13 years till he got sick and eventually died. And about, what, five or six or seven years ago, I guess it was. But uh, so... He sets the ground rules for this these golf outings. One guy would pick the places we're going to play. One guy would pick the restaurants we're going to go to. One guy would pick would handle the rental cars. One guy would get the golf courses. And there would be no questions asked. So it's my time to pick. I say, okay, I let's go to Bermuda. So I pick Bermuda. The phone rings immediately. It's Gleason. Hey, you, you know, I'm in Los Angeles. I said, yeah. And you picked Bermuda? I said, yeah. Remember, you set the ground rules. You said there's no discussion. We all show up wherever we go. Okay, okay. It comes time for him to pick Maui <laughs> in Hawaii. So I called him up and he says, Turnabout's fair play, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> now, that is fantastic. Now we're on the we're on the way to winning that national. We're on the way to winning the. Uh, it was the year before we won the national championship, and we're playing Stanford in the NCAA tournament in Anaheim. So Gleason says, "Can I sit next to you during the game?" So I said, "Paul, this is if it was Maryland, a Maryland game, I could have no. There'd be no no problem, but." This is the NCAA. I don't know if I can, you know, squeeze a ticket out of. Well, it worked out that you could sit next to me the entire game. Oh wow! This is the final four. The first, the yeah, final four year before the, the national. The final four year before we won the national championship. Wow! When they had the Collins twins out there at Stanford and Maryland. Yeah. Lottie Baxter was MVP, I think, of that of that region. Yeah. So and the Breakfast on. Club and Die Hard yeah, actors yeah. sitting next yeah. to oh, you. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, but uh, see, I had no, I had no idea. He had done all these movies. Yeah, Trading Places, so, all kinds of stuff. Oh, yeah, Trading Places, Johnny Be Good. Yeah. Um, so we go out to dinner after the game is over, and we're at this restaurant. And we got us, They got us seated back in the corner. I see the Maryland cheerleaders walk in. There's eight of them, and, and they're making a fuss because they see him, and his back is to, uh, is to them. So I excuse myself. I'm going to go to the men's room. So I stop by their table. I said, they said, is that the guy? I said, yeah, that's the guy. How do you know him? Well, we're high school classmates. So I said, do me a favor. When I go back to the table, I want you guys to get up, come over, ask to get a picture. He will immediately think you're talking about him and stand up. And then I want you to say, who are you? <laughs> no, we, we went with Johnny Holiday. We, don't want to, we want to get a picture of Johnny Holiday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, that's great. That's so I go over to the table. They come over. They they pulled it off perfectly. <laughs> so he's exactly as I predicted. He said, sure. He stands up and the cheerleader says, 
who are you? Well, you want to get a picture of Mr. Holiday? He went right down at all fours. He was <laughs> la- He said, that's good. That is really, really good. <laughs> and then, then, of course, he posed for pictures with all of them. And, oh, my God. That is perfect. And the perfect, that's the perfect uh, full circle way to. Oh, yeah. To oh, yeah. yeah. Where exactly. we're talking the 28th anniversary of Maryland winning the national championship. <laughs> Thanks for doing my segue for me, Johnny. You're, of course, you're the pro. <laughs> We brought it full circle. Oh, uh, man. Thank you for doing this. Johnny Holiday, the man, the myth, the legend, <laughs> the voice yeah. of Maryland football, basketball, the Nats. I mean, everything so much over the years. And of course, all those great local community theater shows. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Okay. Thank you, Jason. A pleasure being with you, my friend. All the best. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.